reading from John chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God, I pray that you would enter into our hearts that we would open up and allow you to come in and to change us. God, that we would not try and prepare room before you get here, but God, just to let you in and change us and have your way in us, have your will in our lives. God, that your will would be done down here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, I pray that you'd bless in the preaching of your word, that it would change our hearts, that we would leave here differently. Pray that you'd give Pastor Andrew courage and wisdom as he preaches, and that you would have your hand of blessing upon it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Who's Jesus? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? What would your neighbors say? Or your coworkers? Or your dentist? Who is Jesus? There's a few primary questions on which the Christian faith rises and falls. And this is one of those questions. Who is Jesus? And the answer to that question is also what sets the Christian faith apart from any other world religion. It's the person of Jesus. So this series, we're seeking the truth about Jesus. We've got a picture of a baby, and we're looking at the incarnate word, the truth about Jesus. So who is Jesus? This is why your view of the nativity, how you understand it, how you interpret it, and what you do about it, it's why it matters. It's why every year in churches, not even every year at Christmas, but every week, every day, this is why churches make such a big deal about it, because the person of Jesus means everything. So who is Jesus? The cool thing about truth, here's the reality about truth, is that truth stands as truth. It doesn't depend on anything else. It's not subjective. And by subjective, I mean that it doesn't, frankly, care how you feel about truth, okay? Truth doesn't change based on what you think about it. So every morning when I get ready to come to work, uh, I get dressed, and as I'm about to leave, I go up to my wife, Jasmine, and I say, Honey, how do I look? And she'll tell me the truth about how I look. She'll tell me whether my pants and my shirt match, and I've got to be honest with you, most of the time they don't. So she'll tell me the truth. Honey, you look awful. Go change. Put this on. She'll tell me the truth. She's the arbiter of my fashion truth in that sense. And so I have a choice. I can respond to that truth and get changed, or I can show up to the office and get laughed at by the staff and people who come in, the fact that I don't match. And so, by the way, if, if ever what I'm wearing doesn't match, uh, you'll know what I chose that day, whether I chose to heed her advice or not. But all of truth does that, doesn't it? It demands a response, a, a prompt. And there's a rock band from the 80s, and they said it this way, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And they're right. Not choosing or not deciding is a choice, but you can choose to accept a truth and respond accordingly, or you can choose to ignore that truth. But truth sustains itself. It doesn't care what you think. Truth is truth is truth. Now, John, the gospel writer of the book of John, 
He's an ambassador. He's a spokesperson for Jesus. He was a disciple. Uh, he, he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, which isn't to say that Jesus didn't love his other disciples either, the other 11, but that's to say that he had a special connection. He had a special relationship with Jesus. So John truly is, is, is the ideal spokesperson to be giving testimony, to be giving uh, account of who Jesus is. And that's the whole point of his gospel. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have an agenda. And so that's why if you read through the gospels, you'll notice they're different. You know, they're the same, but they're different. They, 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 they tell stories differently and there's some variance. And that's not that one's wrong and one's right, but that they're giving an account to the same truth. If you were to stand at the scene of an accident and you were on one street corner and there was three other people on different street corners, you'd all see the same car accident from a different angle. And if you were to give account to what you saw, you'd all have a slightly different account based on how you understood it. And so each gospel writer is the same. They have an agenda, they have a goal. And John's goal is unique in that he is adamant on every single page of convincing you, of persuading, of testifying the person of Jesus. And he actually tells us his whole goal. I love that. The Bible often isn't confusing at all. Sometimes it's very plain. And in chapter, uh, the 20th chapter of John's gospel, verse 31, it says this. These are John's words. He says, I could have written a whole bunch of other stuff. He said, I could have written a lot more. He says there wouldn't be even enough books in the world, not enough paper and, and pens and ink to write all of the accounts that there is to say about Jesus. But he says this in verse 31 of chapter 20, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So his whole goal isn't, he's not trying to sell you something or to get you to sign up for something or subscribe or pay a certain amount of of money or a fee or anything like that. He's simply testifying that you'd be illuminated by the truth about Jesus and that by responding that you would receive life in his name. So his main objective is to simply preach God incarnate. And that's Jesus. It's a, that's the goal of our series is to preach God incarnate, to seek the truth. Now that word incarnate, uh, it has nothing to do with a carcass. I know it reminds me of a carcass, but it's not about a carcass. But there's some part of it, there's a connection there. Incarnation simply means in the flesh. So God incarnate is God in the flesh. One, one writer says that it's God with skin on. God came down to earth, put on human flesh, came and dwelt among us. Verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tented. So God came and, and pitched his tent among us. He came to live among us, to be with his people. One great way to understand incarnation is, is to think about missionaries. A good friend of mine, Matt, he's probably my closest friend, and I won't see him for quite some time. He's, he's packed up. He's taken his wife and his two young kids up to northern Ontario, kind of right up by Hudson's Bay, and into a very remote community of only a couple hundred people. And he's incarnated himself among those people to translate God's word. And so he's given up some of the luxuries and some of the resources he has out on this side of the country, he's given those up to go and dwell among the people who he's trying to reach. And that's exactly what, what Jesus did. God came, he put on skin, he came and he dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. And so this morning, this passage we're looking at, verses 10 through 13, here's, here's the big idea, is that whoever receives the Son is adopted by the Father. That's what I believe the, the, the main message of this passage, verses 10 through 13, are is that whoever receives the Son 
is adopted by the Father. And so what we're going to do for the rest of our time is study those two headings, receiving the Son and the adoption by the Father. So let's, let's begin. Verse 10 says that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So the word, Jesus, was always in the world. It wasn't as though Jesus was, was there with the Father at the, the, the beginning of creation and created earth and put us on this cosmic raft and pushed us off to just be carried by the current of space and time and walked away. No, what John says is that the word was always in the world. So Jesus has everything to do with everything because it says also that the world was created through him and by him and anything that was made wasn't made without him. So Christ has always been in the world. It says this in Romans, Paul reflects and he says that God's fingerprints, his evidence, traces of God are scattered throughout creation. Every bit of creation testifies to God's greatness and to God's creativity and to God's authorship. It says that we are without excuse in Romans chapter one. Humans are without excuse. It says that the law, God's law is written on our hearts and our very own conscience bears witness. So we're truly without excuse. God has made everything and he's given us all kinds of evidence to believe that God has created the entire cosmos. Verse 11 says that he came into his own he came to his own, sorry, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came to his own. He was incarnate. He put skin on and he came to be with his own people. Not just his own people, but his own kingdom. The earth that he created. And it says that, it, that they did not receive him. The BBC did a thing a number of years ago with a British singer-songwriter named Adele. And they put together a short mini documentary and they called it the day that Adele wasn't Adele. And what happened was Adele's a very well-known, she's very prolific and a very gifted singer. There's a contest, there was a pageant for, for Adele lookalikes and soundalikes, okay? So what they did was Adele was disguised and she attended. So she's in the line backstage getting ready and, and there Adele is among a bunch of other Adele imposters. She's among them and they had no idea. Her, probably her greatest fans, had they known who she was and the fact that Jenny was actually Adele, they would have received her a whole lot differently. But they didn't receive her. They didn't know. But Adele was in their midst. Formerly in the Old Testament, when God would dwell with his people, when God would communicate with his people, he did that in the tabernacle, in the temple. And that was reserved for certain people. And they would go in, the priest would go in, the high priest and would go and, and commune with God, and God would speak, and God would, would teach and reveal himself to the priest, who then would be the messenger to God's people. But God blew the doors off the temple and tabernacle in the person of Jesus and came to earth in space and time. He came to his own world and to his own kingdom. And it says that we did not know him and we did not receive him. You can imagine what it'd be like if you showed up from work or you're running errands and you came home one day and the door was locked to your own house. And your door's never locked, right? You never lock it. But you can see kind of through and you see your spouse is in there and maybe your kids and the door's locked and you knock and they don't hear you. And so you walk around to the side and you, you peer through and there's people in the house, but no one receives you, no one notices. No one answers the door when you knock. You can imagine if you walk around to the back and, and you see through your backsliding door, there's a, there's a banquet happening 
with all kinds of other guests in your own home. And they don't even have the, the TV to the right setting. They're doing it wrong. It's your own house. And they don't receive you. You can imagine how well you would feel that you were being received. It says that Jesus came to the world and was not received as Lord. Verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So not everybody received him, but to those who did, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I want to look at that word receive. What does it mean to receive God? Is it simply just an acknowledgement? Is it just simply a nod to say, yes, Jesus is Lord, I accept that? You have to sign a document? You have to sing a song or, or recite some kind of pledge of allegiance? Is that enough? Is that what it means to receive Christ, to receive the word? I don't think so. I think acknowledging Christ as Lord as an acknowledgement makes you a child of God about as much as singing the American National Anthem would make you an American. There's no power there. It's simply a ritual. It's a practice. There's no power there. There's no transformative difference that would take place. It would be an empty ritual to simply just acknowledge Jesus as Lord. So what does it mean then? I don't think it can be merely a mindless nod or a mindless acceptance of those facts, just communicating, processing, and, and signing off on some data and some information. To receive Christ means to accept him for who he is. Throughout scripture, you'll see Jesus the Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah. I hope you know that. Christ wasn't his last name. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So to receive Christ means to accept Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. That's what it means to accept him. So how do we do that? How do we accept, if you want to believe that, what does that even look like? C.S. Lewis, who's a, a late Christian thinker and author who didn't start off as a Christian, he has a fantastic testimony. He wrote a number of Christian classics. I hope you get a chance to read some of them. In Mere, Christi Mere Christianity, he says this. He paints a picture he says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. He then goes on to describe a, a bit of a shack, you know, that needs some roof leak repairs. There's some leaky pipes, okay? There's a few cracks in the windows, some, some minor repairs that, as a living house, you'd be, you'd be glad for the help because they're all little things that you've been meaning to get around to, and we all have those. So if Jesus came to live in your, your living house, he would do those changes, and you'd be glad for it. But it says that the, the small, C.S. Lewis says that the small repairs, the handyman fixes, turn into a, a demolition where walls get knocked down and exterior walls get knocked down and all of a sudden a new wing gets added and a second floor gets added to the roof and then suddenly a courtyard in the front and then a tower off to the side. C.S. Lewis says that kind of construction, deconstruction and reconstruction hurts and it doesn't make sense. He says this, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it. I think that's what it means to receive Christ is to give him the keys and to let him do his thing and to let him change you and transform you and make you more like him. It's to give him that master key and let him have full authority and rule over your life. It's not just acknowledging him and and saying yes and, and reciting a pledge of allegiance, but it's about fully giving yourself over 
to his transformative power. Here's what happens, though, when you do that, is that Jesus cares a lot about everything in your life. So when you give him the keys, you'll receive a new identity. You'll begin to change the way you think, the way you act, the way you talk, the way you treat people. He'll change your relationships, your, your, the way you handle your finances, your sexuality, all of those things. Jesus wants control over your pride, your fears. He wants it all. This is an ongoing reality. So if you're a child of God, this, this never ends. Sometimes when you sign a legal document, you sign it and there's a date. And that is when that takes effect and then it's done and it stands forever. Christianity isn't like that. You don't just sign and date something. Each and every single day is a transformation that occurs. And the, the, the fancy word for that is sanctification, which just simply means that every day you're being renewed. You're being made more like Christ. So that's what it means to receive Christ. It isn't just simply acknowledging that. But there's more to the verse than just receiving Christ, right? Whoever receives the Son, it says, becomes a child of God. So let's look at that second part, the adoption by the Father. Let's look at verse 12. It says, to all who received him, to who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you were a Jew or a Pharisee, you read this, you'd be squirming because of that word all, but to all who did receive him, because in a Jew, Jewish way of thinking, if you were a descendant of Abraham and Moses, that was you. You're a covenantal descendant of the Old Testament. Your, your pedigree was right. Your heritage, your lineage entitled you to such a thing, to be a, called a child of God. But the doors have been blown off that. But to all who did receive him, there was a mentality in the Jewish understanding that there was Jews, God's chosen people, and everybody else, Gentiles. It's us and it's them. But this verse is a little scandalous when it says that to all who did receive him, they received the right to become children of God. Paul calls this a mystery later in the New Testament. It's not a mystery because nobody knows about it. It's a secret. But it's a mystery because it's, it's a wonder. It's an awe. We can't fully understand it, that God would extend his grace beyond just his covenant, covenantal descendants, his chosen people. It says this in Ephesians about the mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. You see, the Jews who felt entitled were now stripped of their entitlement because suddenly half-breeds and Gentiles and outsiders and unclean people could now receive this gift of adoption. It's not just for the descendants of Abraham. So you don't become a child of God because you're a descendant of Abraham, but rather you become a descendant of Abraham when you become a child of God. They had it backwards. God told Abraham that your descendants, your offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the, on the beaches. He didn't mean that in a genealogical sense, biologically, that you're just going to have a lot of offspring and a lot of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and so on. But God was thinking much bigger and was promising them that his children would outnumber all of those things because they would receive the son. He would adopt them. So to all who did receive him, he gave them the right. 
That word gave. We're going through this word by word, by the way. That word gave. What does it mean to, to give a right? Well, did you know that as a Canadian citizen, you're protected and you're, you're sealed and marked with the, by the Canadian Charter of Rights, which is a great thing. We should all be very grateful for it. There's a lot of rights that you may or may not know about. I certainly don't know them all. But you have rights and freedoms that are given to you by virtue of the fact that you're a citizen of this country. You can't earn them, and they can't be taken away. They can be changed if, you know, you do something you shouldn't. But they can't be taken away. When you're 18, you can vote. That's a right that's given to you. And it says that to anyone who receives the Son, God will give them the right to be called his child, given to you by virtue of the fact that you received the Son, not because you earned it, not because you bought it, but because it was given to you. Children of God implies that you become that. You're adopted. That's not only a theological word, but it's a word that's just part of our vocabulary, adoption. We all understand what adoption means. And I think adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel. A friend who's, who's dear to me, him and his wife, his name is Clayton and her name is Angie. And they live on the mainland and they have two biological kids of their own. But they're a family of six, they have four kids. Two of their kids have been adopted from Africa. And it's a beautiful picture that they have two kids who are theirs because they've been adopted. Clayton and Angie, when, when the opportunity came up to adopt these kids each separately, but through the same agency or ministry, whatever it was, they didn't ask, well, how healthy are they? How old are they? Where are they from? Do we really want them, honey? What do you think? No, when the opportunity came up, they took their kids exactly the way they were. They didn't ask any questions. They didn't say, no, no, we'll wait till they, till they graduate or let's wait till their, their grades improve a little bit or we'll wait till they get over that disease. No, they took them just the way they are. Clayton says this about his kids that are adopted. He says that the moment they're adopted, they become fully toughnel, and that's their last name. They're fully toughnel. He says that none of our kids are more or less toughnel. They're all fully toughnel, regardless of the ones who are adopted or are biological. He says they're fully toughnel in everything that comes with that. None of them are more or less members. They're given a new identity that can't be changed or taken away. Isn't that awesome? That's the promise that children of God have is that they're adopted regardless of their history, of how good they are, how bad they are, where they've been, who they've slept with, how they spend their money, what their past is like, what they think about before they're going to bed. Christian adoption is where God takes you just the way you are. Max Licato, who's a who's a children's book author, he's a Christian writer. He doesn't just write kids' books, but he's known for his kids' works. He says this in one of his books, that Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. So he'll take you just the way you are. He, I'm, a, I'm a complete mess, admittedly. Okay, he takes me just the way I am, but he loves me enough to leave me that way. He loves me too much to leave me that way. He wants to change and transform me. Peter puts it this way, in First Peter, that we're adopted out of darkness and into marvelous light. We're taken out of one way of living and brought into a complete new one. Being a Christian is about receiving a new identity. It's about having a changed purpose. It's about becoming, becoming an heir, a recipient of the promises of God. Verse 13, though, clarifies how that happens. It says this in verse 13, 
they, become, they, they receive the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John repeats himself. He says the same thing, but, but differently. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's different ways of saying the same thing. His point there is that it's not by any human result. It's not any kind of transaction. It's not by any kind of merit. It's not by any kind of thing anybody did. Not by anybody's will, not by anybody's power, but strictly by God's grace. So why do we need to be adopted by God? Why does God need to initiate it? Why can't we earn it? You might be thinking, I have a lot of money. Why can't I just buy it? Or I'm pretty good. Why can't I just earn it by my actions? I think our adoption needs to be received so that we have no reason to boast about it. Because the truth is it has nothing to do with us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Do you think Clayton and Angie's kids from Africa did anything? You think they, they impressed Clayton and Angie in any sort of way beforehand so that they were handpicked? No. They came up, it was, it was a purely a, an adoption out of grace and out of love and out of compassion. There was no merit whatsoever and there didn't need to be. It wouldn't matter how sick they were or how old they were or what country in Africa. Didn't matter. Point is this, is that God's children don't earn their way to becoming God's child. It's not by their own righteousness. It's simply by God's grace. So if you're like me, you read this, this passage. It's a little bit uncomfortable. There's a bit of an elephant in the room, and that happens a lot in Scripture, doesn't it? There's a question that, that you should be asking, and that question is, why do some people receive it and some people not? Verse 9 tells us that the light came into the world for everybody. It shines and gives light to everyone. There's a lot of discussion and debate and disagreement around the how and the why this happens, but let me tell you that the Bible's very clear on two things. The Bible's very clear that the light, that Jesus is universally available. There's no one who's outside of the reach of God. There's no unforgivable sin for God. There's no sin that couldn't have been atoned for through Christ. The light is universally available. Throughout John's gospel, you'll see, again, this is his agenda. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so you'll see, Jesus will say something or do something, and he'll either be received, people will either believe, or they'll disbelieve. He'll be rejected. And John's very purposeful in that. So the Bible's clear, though, that the light is universally available, but it's equally clear that light is not universally received. Some people saw the same thing. Some believed and some disbelieved. Here's the bottom line. John 3.16, a verse we all know very well. Two verses later. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The light's universally available, but it's not universally received. So let me ask you, how are you gonna respond to the light? Will you receive it? Will you run towards it? Or will it cause you to scurry in shame and rebellion because you love the darkness more than the light? How do you respond to the light? In the book of Matthew, Jesus 
sits down with his disciples and he's very plain. And I love when, he, when he's very plain because even his thick-headed disciples can understand what he's saying. He says this in Matthew 25, when the son of man himself comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. The sheep are God's children. The sheep are the ones who have received the son. It says this in verse, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, come, you've received me. You're a recipient, you're an heir of the promise. If that's you, you've been adopted. If you're a sheep, you've been adopted by grace. The inheritance is yours. You can partake in that. And in that, you should rejoice. If you're a sheep, if you're a child of God, you should rejoice. And the next step for you is to go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And you can celebrate in that adoption and share that with as many people as you can. Let's continue. Verse 41, he says to the goats, those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Listen, those who live apart from God and scurry and run from the light will spend eternity also apart from God. There'll be eternal fire and anguish number of years ago, I was in Bible school. I'm not really a crier. This passage brought me to tears that some people run from the light. Not everybody receives it, but they can, but they don't. Those who are found apart from God will remain apart from God. So if that's you this morning, what's your next step? Your next step is to heed the warning. It's there to run to the light, repent of your sin just the way you are. You don't have to figure out everything in your life before you can run to the light. God's waiting. His arms are open and his grace is sufficient if you receive the son. So let me ask you, who is Jesus and are you his child? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's very clear. Pray that we would see the light, that we would respond to it, that we would run to it, that we wouldn't scurry, we wouldn't flee. Father, those of us who are your children, we rejoice. We recognize that it's not by our own merit, our own doing, because we have enough money or street cred. But Lord, it's by your grace. Would we see the light? Would we run to it? And would you change us? It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.